Hi, my name is Kevin McDonald, and I'm declaring my independence. Independence from what? Why, negative thoughts and energy, of course. Chief among them, hate, division, and fear. You see, I know that we're all one, and together we can solve any problem, save our planet and each other. Please, join me as we come together as one and choose a better way to be. So now, let's begin with my independence report. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of My Independence Report. This is, uh, I've been waiting for this for a while now. It's a very, very special episode that we are going to be talking about today. First of all, I'd like to introduce Eric Hall. Eric, how are you? I'm good. How are you? We're good. And uh, and also, also Matt, Matt Shea is here, and uh, we'd like to thank Matt Shea for being here as well. Hey, Matt. Watch out for cars, though, Matt. <laughs> and, uh, and our very, very special guest. His name is Steve Snyder. Yeah, he's Steve. I got to do this for Steve. <laughs> Steve has written a book. It's all about his father, and the name of the book is uh, "Shot Down." And uh, I want to take you back to the mists of time, because eighty years ago. Uh, coming up on December 7th, the United States entered World War II. Uh, the Boeing 777, or Boeing um, B-17 was built right here in Seattle, and they built literally thousands of them during the war. And one of them was piloted by a gentleman um, who we're going to talk about today. Uh, his name was Howard Snyder. Um, and his son is with us and has written the book because Mr. Snyder Sr. was a pilot of a B-17. And uh, Steve, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, glad to be here. Thank you. It is, I, I have to tell you, I know some people. There's a friend of mine. He's 99 years old, and he was a pilot in World War II. I'm so sad to say that after 80 years, we are losing the um, what they call the best generation in the history of the country, and they and um, we're we're losing them at a at a at a sad rate. And so this this history that you've written needs to be kept alive because the greatest generation, which is really what they termed it, is a <clears throat> amazing. It was an amazing time to be an American. We were bombed on December 7th. We got together and worked diligently. Um, women went to work. Uh, Rosie the Riveter and uh, other names, they, they sold bonds. They changed everything because we were so um, together. And that was the last time in my memory, even though it was before my memory, <laughs> that we as a country were all driven by the same things. And Steve has written greatly about it. Matt, you'd like to add something? Sadly, the Korean War went down as the Forgotten War, and we don't want that to happen to World War II or any of them. And the people that that worked in World War II survived World War II, but saw some absolutely horrific things. So, Steve, first of all, uh, welcome to the show and tell us about your dad. Oh, gosh. Well, he was born in uh, Norfolk, Nebraska, um, 1915, the home he was lived in is still there in Norfolk. Uh, he moved out to uh, Southern California when he was 13 years old, right before he started high school. 
uh, with his family, lived in Eagle Rock, went to Glendale High School. And after he uh, graduated from high school, he went to work for Desmond's Clothing Company in Los Angeles. And he was working there when, uh, in the fall of 1940, uh, President Roosevelt introduced the first peacetime draft in US history. And he signed up for the uh, military in April of 1942. And he was stationed at Fort Lewis, Washington, initially went in the, uh, the, the army into the infantry. Uh, and then three months later, uh, on, uh, in July, he married Ruth Hempel uh, in Pasadena, California. My mom was uh, born and raised in, in Pasadena. It was shortly after she graduated from UCLA, where she was a classmate of the legendary Jackie Robinson. Oh, wow. With the Dodgers being in the, you know, the, the pennant race right now. And then uh, a few months later, as you mentioned, on uh, December 7th of 1941, a date which will let an infamy, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor in the United States was at war. Uh, and my mom at the time was really concerned. The future was very uncertain. So she went up to visit my dad over Christmas in Washington. And nine months later, uh, Susan Ruth was born, my oldest sister. And that's who my dad named his plane after. Oh, wow. And he didn't think he could uh, uh, support his new family very well on a private's pay in the army, in the new bride, uh, you know, baby on the way. So he decided to volunteer for the Air Force where he could make more money, especially if he made it through uh, pilot training and became an officer. And in June of 1942, he started his pilot training. He initially went through uh, pre-flight training at Santa Ana, California, and went, then went through the various stages of pilot training, and that began his career uh, in the Air Force. But uh, my dad was a great guy. We were very close. Uh, my sisters and I always compared him to John Wayne. He was that type of guy. He was a big guy, six foot three, no nonsense, uh, disciplinarian, you know, believed and had uh, uh, strong morals. You know, but there was no gray area. It was either black or white. And uh, a great guy. You know, he coached my little league teams, uh, supported me. And, so he was uh, had a great relationship with my dad. He didn't talk much about World War II when he was alive, did he? No, like most World War II veterans, he didn't. So I knew the basics uh, of his World War II history growing up. I knew he was a B-17 pilot. He was stationed in England with the Air Force, uh, the 8th Air Force. And then his plane was named the Susan Ruth after my oldest sister. He flew bombing missions over occupied Europe and Germany and February 1944, his plane was shot down over Belgium, and he was missing in action for seven months. But he evaded capture, and he made it back to uh, the States. It really wasn't until 1989 when he started talking about it. Uh, in August of that year, uh, the, the Belgium American Foundation uh, in uh, southern Belgium uh, erected a memorial to my dad and his crew. And the other three crew members that were still living at the time went over for the dedication and there he was reunited with all these Belgian people that hid him from the Germans, revisited these places where he was hidden, and that brought it all back, and he started talking about it. And then five years later, in 1994, I made my first trip to Belgium. I've been there six times now. But that's when it became personal for me, because I went with my parents, and you know, my dad showed me around all these places. I got to meet a couple of his help, uh, helpers. And uh, so that, that was... Uh, 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 amazing, amazing trip. 
it's wow. it, Eric, anything you'd like to add real quick? I, I'm just stunned. You know, I love the fact that the Belgian people were there for your dad and the risk that was involved with that, because I know there was no, there was no, there was no tolerance for oh, that kind of thing. Absolutely. The people who uh, helped my dad or any downed airman for that matter were unbelievably brave people because they risked not only their lives, but the lives of their family and friends because of the German secret police, the Gestapo found out about it. They'd be arrested, tortured, neither shot or sent to a concentration camp. And like Kevin mentioned a little earlier, some of the Belgian people that helped my dad and other members of his crew did meet that fate. Oh my God. Yeah. Two things here. The professor on Gilligan's Island, he was shot down in a bomber. He was injured in the GI Bill of Rights, educated him to become an actor and the rest is history. Your dad's story ever so slightly reminds me a little bit of Anne Frank, a little bit. Well, it had the, the, the pressure definitely involved with the uh, the Nazis and the, and the Germans, you know, looking for him and trying to come after him. That's 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 true. I've been to Amsterdam and been in the Anne Frank house, and uh, it's very moving. Man, I can imagine. Did your dad talk about a close encounter with the Nazis? Oh, he... Uh, yeah, I am unbelievably blessed to know so much and so many details about not only my dad, but on about each member of the crew. And the book is not just about my dad, but it's about what happened to each member of the crew. Five of them came home, but five of them did not. Um, so it talks about their story, goes into detail about their stories, and also about all the Belgian people that risked their lives trying to help them. I, and, and by way of in just a second, Matt, and I'll get to you by way of um, understanding what it was like to be a pilot on a B-17 bomber stationed in England and flying missions over Germany. Uh, the average number of missions somebody would fly before they got shot down was six. These guys knew. And I, I, I thank your dad for his service because. Brave. What he did and, and the bravery that these men exhibited because they knew on any given flight that the odds were they were not going to be able to come home. And it's amazing to me that these guys were that brave. I would have I would have wet my pants every time I got in the plane to go because it would be so frightening. Your your dad, did he ever talk about uh, the the uh, the the fatality rate that was going on with the B-17s at that time? Well, as you mentioned, flying combat was brutal. There were more men lost in the 8th Air Force, 26,000, than the entire Marine Corps fighting in the Pacific. Oh, man. Another, another 28,000 men became prisoners of war after their planes were knocked out of the sky by either German anti-aircraft fire or German fighters. And it was deadly from and dangerous from the time they took off to the to the time they landed. Uh, at, at the peak, there were 40 bomb groups in the 8th Air Force uh, located in an area called East Anglia in England, which is about the size of Vermont. And these bases were only located about five to 10 miles apart. So on the day of a mission, you had hundreds of bombers all taken off at the same time. And back then there was no air traffic control. There was no radar. Usually the weather was socked in. It was overcast and the 
that you couldn't see anything about until you got above the cloud layer. So mid-air collisions were, were not uncommon. And then they had to form up. Individual planes formed up into three plane elements. Elements formed up into bomb squadrons. Bomb squadrons formed up into bomb groups. Bomb groups formed up into combat wings. Combat wings formed up into air divisions. And all this took an hour to two hours before they could even begin their uh, mission across the English Channel. And then they had to deal with the elements. These planes weren't pressurized back then, so above 10,000 feet, they had to go on oxygen or else they'd pass out in a couple of minutes and could die. And then it was extremely cold. It was minus 40 to 60 degrees below zero. So frostbite was a huge problem, and many airmen were hospitalized for lengthy periods of time because of the serious frostbite injuries. One of my dad's waist gunners was in the hospital for two and a half months. Wow. And then they had, the next thing they had to deal with was the enemy fighters. Uh, the Germans had radar stations set up along the continental coast of England, so the, uh, Europe, excuse me. So they knew when these bomber formations were coming, they'd send up their air force, the Luftwaffe, Luftwaffe to intercept them. And then when they neared the target, they would run into anti-aircraft fire. Uh, the Germans had these flak guns. Flak was the German, or the, the abbreviation for the German word for aircraft defense cannon. And they were deadly weapons. They would fire 20 shells a minute. And they were calibrated to explode at the same altitude that these bombers were flying. And when they exploded, it, uh, the shells were filled with all these different shapes and sizes of razor-sharp metal that would burst out hundreds of feet and easily penetrate the thin aluminum skin of these bombers. Um, if a, a shell hit a bomber directly, it would ba basically disintegrate and disappear. And if it knocked off a wing, that bomber would just drop five miles to the ground like a stone. And then after their bombing run, going back to, your, to their bases at England, the, the bombers that made it through, then they had to face uh, German aircraft uh, or enemy fighters again. So it, it was a, a brutal undertaking. Matt? You had commented that five did not return. In regards to being actually shot down, did the entire crew survive that? Well, the, it was on a mission to Frankfurt, Germany on February 8th of 1944, my dad's plane dropped their bombs successfully, but their bomb bay doors got hit by flak and uh, they couldn't get them back up. And as a result, that caused a drag on the plane. They started losing airspeed and they started lagging behind the bomber formation going back to England. And like uh, wolves or lions on prey, a couple of German fighters, Fock Wolf 190s, uh, came in for the, for the kill. And in the ensuing air battle, the Susan Ruth was, was shot down. Uh, two of the crew were killed in the plane when it was attacked. The other eight men were able to bail out, and then various things happened to them that are explained in the book. But both those German fighters were shot down. One was piloted by Siegfried Merrick. His plane crashed, and he was killed in the plane. And the other was piloted by Hans Berger, who was able to bail out and made it through the war. Uh, one day when I was doing my research, uh, my wife asked me, well, why don't you, or told me, actually, I should say, well, why don't you try to find the German pilot that shot down your dad's plane? And I'm thinking to myself, she has no idea what she's talking about. She's naive. It's a ridiculous idea. But like a good husband, I did what she told me to, to do, and I found Hans Berger. Ooh, that must have been a good conversation. And fortunately for me, he became a translator after the war, and he sp speaks perfect English. And I found out that the gunners on my dad's plane actually shot Hans down at the same time he shot them down. They shot each other down. And interestingly, interestingly 
interestingly enough, of all the people that are involved in the shot down story, Hans Berger is the only one that's still living. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, he turned 98 years old and we became friends. That's wonderful. Wow. <laughs> that's he wonderful. Was, uh, and if you go to, uh, there was a um, YouTube presentation that you did and uh and they and they show them sitting and talking and and laughing and and you know from his perspective uh being a german um um pilot he was just doing his job and just doing orders he wasn't he was a and turns out he he was a very nice man and uh he was just on the other side and and so i'm glad you found him that 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 really is an important piece of history to recognize that they're not that that yes the Nazis, the Nazi Party and and the and the uh, SS and and some of those were were indeed in, in as as a matter of fact and I hope I'm not betraying this but but um, five guys were were able to walk away three were captured and were subsequently rather than given over to uh, prisoner war camps. They were shot on the scene, and and that so it was it was a horrific time. And your dad, you know, he survived some of the most awful uh, moments of of life and death that one can imagine. Um, it's 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 amazing what what he was able to do uh, through all of that. Yeah, Hans said it was unfortunate they had to be shooting at each other, but you know that was war. And as he comments, he 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 he's done this a couple of times. He goes, "We warned all evil Nazis." <laughs> you know, you had the SS and the Nazis and the extremists. You know, they're the ones that were can uh, run in the concentration camps. But a lot of the and a lot of people don't realize you had two segments of the the German military. You had the historical, you know, military, uh, the, the Wehrmacht. Uh, who were just soldiers, you know, doing their duty. And then you had the Waffen SS, which was the armed SS. And those were the uh, committed the atrocities. And those were the, the fanatics and uh, just, uh, you know, horrible, horrible people, to put it bluntly. And let's not forget that uh, it was the traditional army, including um, um, Field Commander Rommel, uh, that that uh, attempted to assassinate Hitler. Um, yeah, they, because... there were there were a number of assassinati assassination attempts on Hitler's life. All yeah. of them failed, unfortunately. Yeah, that that one failed due to they put the bomb between uh, on the wrong side of the table, and uh, there was a uh, uh, oak uh, uh, leg that deflected the blast and allowed Hitler to live. Um, which is a story for another time, but I, I'm so glad that you wrote the, wrote this book because we need to keep the courage and what what we as a nation went through. Um, nobody today understands what what the nation went through at that time, do they? No, un unfortunately not. You know, especially the younger generations, they just take for granted all the freedoms that we in, enjoy today, and they have no idea the price that was paid and the sacrifices that were made to ensure that we have those, those freedoms. Um, basically, uh, well, I retired in 2009 and that's really when I had the time to delve into my dad's war history in more detail. And at the beginning, I had no intention of writing a book, but as I just got into my research and learned more and more about what happened to my dad and the story of the other crew members and the Belgian people, I, 
I just came to the conclusion that it was so unique and so compelling it needed to be told. So I decided to write a book. And uh, since that time, it's totally changed my life. I basically, my, my passion in life is to uh, keep the memory alive of those men uh, who fought the air war over Europe. I, uh, it, it's a part-time job, basically. I go all across the country to air shows, signing copies of my book, tell, talking to people about the air war. Uh, I, I speak uh, before all sorts of uh, organizations uh, about the book and about the 8th Air Force. So it's, it's really my, uh, my passion in life. It, it's, it's, it's what I do. Uh, to, I'm leaving. I just got back from a presentation in Salt Lake City. And uh, at the end of this week, I'm going to Georgia to do some presentations down there at South Carolina. And so I, I really keep busy doing this. But I feel like you said, uh, Kevin, that it's so important that we try to keep the member of these guys alive. It would, it, yeah. It was, Matt, got anything? Well, I'm just taking this all this in. I remember Life magazine years ago had a bomber pilot that talked about a Japanese fighter plane that kamikazed into the bomber, and they're both falling down. They eventually separated. The bomber got started again, and the guy wrote a story. The pilot got started again, and he read the story. And years later, they show them being best of friends with the pilot standing on a milk crate. Could it be because one was short, one was tall? And they were friends for life after that, just like your dad's friend was. Yeah, it's too bad I didn't decide to do this earlier. You know, I would have loved to have my dad have met Hans to see what they had to say to each other. But my dad, uh, my dad died in 2007. Uh, he wasn't the last uh, crew member to die, but he was the oldest at 91. And then I didn't decide to write the book until 2012. Well, nowadays, the sad thing is, is that, you know, uh, my, my uh, and I don't know if uh, your dad did this, but the uh, friend of mine, he's 99, and he was in World War II, and they've got a program. Where you can, if you were a veteran of World War II, you, they'll fly you free to uh, the capital and to and to have a uh, uh, a memorial there. And and did, you, did your dad ever do that, or did he think about doing that? Um, well, they didn't. They hadn't started that uh, when my dad died. It's called the honor flight. Ah, yeah, that's uh, right. yeah. They they fly him to Washington D.C. to the World War II memorial. Uh, the last trip my dad ever took. I uh, was in 2004. I accompanied him to a reunion of the Air Force's Escape and Evasion Society. And we uh, took a bus. We was in Pennsylvania. We took a bus down to D.C. It was right before the official dedication. But he wanted to see the memorial uh, before he died. And uh, as I mentioned, that was the last trip he ever took. But that was a special, special trip with him. And, and when he did he ever get back to uh, uh, Belgium? Yeah, so he was there for the dedication, and then he, he went back uh, a couple other times. He uh, he stayed in touch with many of the people who helped him until they died. Um, they saved his life, and he, he never forgot that. Uh, they exchanged Christmas cards, and he did go over there a couple times and, uh, and meet with them to, at various uh, celebrations. Um, so that they, he said that they saved his life. They would let him sleep in their bed. They'd sleep on the floor. Uh, the food was rationed back then, so it was hard to come by. They'd give him, you know, their a larger portion of, of the food. Uh, so they they were just absolutely wonder, wonderful people. 
But then, but then the uh, and there are several instances described in the book where he was almost discovered by the Gestapo. Uh, and then finally, though, he got tired of hiding. Uh, it was very stressful for, for him because, you know, the Germans could, uh, you know, break in at any moment. Uh, some of the people helping him could be collaborators and turn him over to the Gestapo. And so it, it was, you know, after he bailed out, he had no idea what happened to the other, his buddies on the crew or couldn't contact the U.S. military. And finally, he got tired of hiding. Um, Word came that the Allies had landed at Normandy on June 6th of 44, and he decided to get back in the fight. Unlike most airmen, he was in the infant army for a year in the infantry, so he knew how to fight on the ground. So he, did decide, he decided to join the French resistance, and he joined a, a unit of the French resistance. One of his helpers, Amy Coules, uh, escorted him across the border into, into France, and he fought uh, with this... French resistance unit for uh, a couple of months before the, the U.S. armies finally came up and liberated the area. And there, he, there's uh, several encounters that they had with the, with the Germans when he was fighting with the uh, resistance. Has uh, a Hollywood producer come a calling yet? <laughs> Not yet. A lot of people who read the book say it should be made into a movie. It's, it's, just, it, it's just one. I mean, it's, you can't make this stuff up. It's just unbelievable. Uh, the things that uh, my dad and the other members of the crew uh, went through. Uh, when he first bailed out, he, is, he came down in some trees right at the French-Belgium border, and his parachute got hung up in the branches, and he's dangling 20 feet off the ground and couldn't get down. But fortunately for him, a couple young Belgian men, Henri Franken and Raymond Dervan, came to his rescue before the Germans got to him. Um, he's only, he, they took him back that night to the Dervan farmhouse, but he only stayed there one night because he thought it was too dangerous for him to stay there any longer than that with German patrols combing the area. So the next night, a Belgium customs officer, Paul Tilcan, came and got him on a tandem bicycle to take him to a safer location. Then after that, he was moved from place to place to place. How long he stayed in any given location depended on how brave the people were who lived there and how dangerous the Belgium underground thought it was for him to stay there. He might spend one night, he might spend six weeks. And then finally, as I mentioned, uh, he got tired of hiding, so he did, decided to join the French resistance. Wow. You know, that's the other thing that a lot of people, younger people, don't recognize is that Europe in total was taken over by the Nazis uh, all, the, all the way to the uh, English Channel. And so Belgium and uh, France and Poland and all, all these places were, were overrun by the Germans. And so when the Americans came on, uh, December, or on um, uh, June 6th and they, and they began to liberate France and Belgium, they considered us absolutely God-sent liberators. And they were, they were unbelievably happy with and, – and some of that – Goodwill continues to today, even though we don't necessarily deserve it like we did then. Uh, but uh, it, it, was, it was amazing that your dad was treated like royalty when he went back there. Absolutely. Uh, the, the Belgian people and uh, the people in the Netherlands, northern in France, uh, to this day, they're still so grateful and so thankful for the, the U.S. and for the Allies liberating them from four years of Nazi oppression and Nazi occupation. And they do a great job of educating the younger generations to remember as well. 
because they went through hell during those four years of Nazi oppression. You know, we've never been occupied. You know, we've never had a, a battle on our soil here in the U.S. So we, we just we have no idea what it was like to lose all the freedoms. That, and they did in the Netherlands and in Belgium. And they've erected a number of memorials in the area and uh, an anniversary date of those memorials, like the one to my dad and his crew. They have ceremonies. The big ceremonies are all around September 2nd, though, uh, when the, the area where my dad was, uh, right near north of the French border in Chimay and Montmagny, celebrate the liberation of the first crossing over into Belgium of the U.S. armies. And those celebrations are fabulous. I, I've been to quite a few, and they last several days. How do they celebrate? Uh, oh, they, they set up these big tents that seat hundreds of people where they have lunches and dinners and band concerts and, uh, and dances. Uh, they have... Uh, are these brass bands? Are they, pardon? Are, are they brass bands? Are they... Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, the, uh, the, the local reenactors come out and they have, uh, you know, military vehicle parades. They set up an army camp. Uh, the local beer Chimay just flows. The U.S. military is there. The Belgian military, French military, the U.S. ambassador to Belgium comes down with an entourage. Uh, all the local villagers come out. Uh, they're just wonderful events. Uh, but they have solemn ceremony, ceremonies as well. I've made some lifelong dear friends in Belgium and in, in the Netherlands. Uh, one of my dad's crew was buried at the Ardennes American Cemetery in Belgium. And another one of my dad's crew was along with four other, three other U.S. downed airmen that are in the shot down story. The four of them are buried at the Netherlands American Cemetery in Margraten. So that uh, you alluded uh, to a little while ago, Kevin, about uh, three of my dad's crew being uh, captured and killed. Well, actually, there was eight airmen, three from my dad's crew and five airmen from three other B-17 crews that were, were captured and uh, interrogated, and all eight of them were shot. So can do we know why they, was it just convenience that they were shot? Was it, was it they didn't want to take, take the time to, to take them to a uh, prisoner of war camp? Or was that just kind of their, their modus operandi? That's just what they did. Well, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, we'll never know the answer to, uh, to that for sure. They did. But they, they well, were, that's, that's a good question. Uh, we'll never know the answer to, uh, to that for sure. They did. But they, they well, were, that's, that's a good question. Uh, we'll never know the answer to uh, to that for sure. They did. But they, they well, were, that's, that's a good question. Uh, we'll never know the answer to uh, to that for sure. They did. But they, they, they were, a time loop. Question. Uh, we'll never know the answer to uh, to that for sure. They did. Uh oh. Oh, I think I think I'm back. Okay. <laughs> back. That's that's what we call having a uh, um, a uh, technical difficulty there for a second. But uh, so, is, is, did you answer that question, Steve? Or were you able to? Or did I interrupt you about about was that just what they did? Is that they're, they 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 just um, uh, murdered uh, people that they captured? Matt, go ahead. In World War II, there was an American pilot shot down, similar to your dad, and his parachute had failed him. And this was over Germany, I believe. 
and he hit a snowbank at an angle from being way up there. And when the Nazis came, he was alive, and they reverend that. They took care of him. They took him to a hospital. There was something about, have, was that a miracle? Was it just the odds or what? But anyway, he was taken care of in a hospital and released after the war because he was an exception having survived something like that. I also suspect that it depends upon who you're captured by. Would that be true? Yes. If, if you were captured uh, by, the, by the Air Force, the Luftwaffe, they would treat you well. Uh, you didn't have any worries about being killed. Uh, these, uh, these airmen, three from my dad's crew and then uh, five from another, uh, three other crews, they were hiding in a makeshift hut that they, along with some Belgium helpers, uh, erected in the forest uh, just outside of Chimay. And a Belgium collaborator, you know, ratted them out to the uh, Gestapo. And so there were various factions of, uh, of a number of different German police organizations, just not the Gestapo, but they had military police and they also had some regular uh, troops. They came down and surrounded the, the hut and they captured the guys and they, they did have three weapons inside the hut and so one of the theories is is that you know they're they weren't fighting uh against the germans but in that area the underground and the resistance was fighting and uh you know assassinating germans and so i one of the assumptions is that well they found these weapons and so they just treated them as terrorists and after interrogating them they took them into the school schoolhouse to shimei and shimei and then after interrogating, they brought them back out near to where the hut was and then shot them all. Uh, two Germans uh, walked behind each airman. They walked in different directions and then they were each shot in the back twice and buried in a, a common grave uh, in Belgium that was discovered uh, by the, the Belgium graves uh, registration after the war. And there's a whole big war crime history uh, investigation done I have I have a copy of it. It's you know, yay thick. It goes into deep because they 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 uh, interviewed all these Belgian people and actually some of the Germans, but only one of the Germans was actually uh, tried, convicted, and and hanged for the crime. Oh wow! And Matt, any talk about the Geneva Convention? Um. Well, the the. Yeah, the they were signatory to the Geneva Convention, like the U.S. The Russians weren't uh, signatory to the, the Geneva Convention. Neither were the Japanese. Uh, so you know, and as a whole, the Germans, you know, they abided by the, the Geneva Convention. But the 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 various German units or Nazi units that uh, captured uh, the members of my dad's crew and these other airmen, they they. You know, they were more on the police side, uh, and actually, it was a group of Russians who had uh, uh, General Vaslov's. Uh, he surrendered to the Germans uh, during the Russia, the German invasion of Russia, and was actually fighting them on the on the side of the Germans. So some of the troops involved were Russian troops, so they took no mercy on those guys. Needless to say, now, isn't it, isn't it also because the Germans were not as dedicated i guess guess dedicated is a, is a decent word to to justice 
and being fair and the rules of war. And they were, they, in, in, in segments, they could just go and do whatever they wanted, really. Well, the, the, the units that captured the, the, these guys, they were more, more associated, you know, with the Nazis and the SS as opposed to the regular army, the Wehrmacht. Now, that was another, you know, reason. Yeah. So when, let's talk about you a little bit. When you were growing up, and, and uh, I know your dad was a disciplinarian, and he was a strong guy. He was a John Wayne type. And was it was a was a great guy. I, I know you looked up to him and you miss him terribly. Uh, he he was he was a really good man. And what did you do for your career? What did you do before you got involved in this great new passionate thing that you're doing? And you're flying all over the country, uh, talking to groups and keeping the spirit alive, which I commend you for greatly. Well, thank you. Well, I was born in Pasadena, uh, raised in that area. Like my mother went to UCLA. Uh, when I was there, I was a classmate of Lou Alcindor, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Got to look up to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who's, read, who's read my book, by the way. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Very cool. And uh, after uh, college, uh, I moved to uh, the beach. I live in Seal Beach right now, which is a little uh, quiet beach town in Orange County, about 40 miles south of Los Angeles. And have a second home in Sedona, Arizona. So I'll go back and forth between the two. But I got into sales and sales management uh, the last 36 years with a company called Vision Service Plan (VSP). Uh, oh, yeah, which I know them. Yeah, which provides vision cares and employee benefit. So yeah, I got these. Yeah. Corporations offer their employees to cover eye exams, glasses, and contact lenses. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I, I went to work for them in uh, 73, uh, about 10 years, I was uh, regional manager in Southern California, Southern Nevada, and then the company went national in 85, and I became VP of national accounts, and I started traveling all over the United States, calling on Fortune 500 companies. Hmm. And then uh, 10 years later, uh, kind of a, a unique situation, even though I lived in California, I became uh, VP of our Eastern Sales Division, which is everything east of the Mississippi. So for, for 25 years, I traveled all around the United States uh, working for VSP. And now really I'm back doing the same thing I was doing, you know, traveling all over the place. But instead of, instead of selling the vision care plan, I'm selling basically a book. <laughs> so you don't mind traveling by air at all, do you? Oh, yeah. Back in the day, it was kind of fun. Now it sucks. You know, not, not only because... <laughs> Not only because of uh, you know nine eleven, but now with COVID, you have to oh, wear masks all the time. You know, it's a it's a real pain. At least you're are not you... getting shot at, though. <laughs> you got yeah. that on your dad, you know. <laughs> are you in the Million Mile Club? Oh gosh, I I, I and I'm in the American. I, I'm in the two million mile club of American oh, and almost God. two million miles of United. Yeah. Yeah, they escort you onto the plane, and you got your own place to in the airport to go to that the rest of the riffraff can't get to because well, you are. That, though that was the that was olden days. Now, oh, uh, now yeah. now now you can't even get a drink of water hardly on a plane. Uh, yeah, I used to I used to travel around a lot before two thousand one, and and I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. But, but thank God that you do because you are keeping it alive for the, the the pure grit of the guys that did it and the understanding that that without their sacrifice we could be speaking German today. Or Russian. 
or Russians. <laughs> yes. Which we might someday anyway. That's true, man. Yeah, that's a whole that's a whole other story. <laughs> yeah. That's your second book. <laughs> yeah. We have the Boeing Flight Museum out here. And I was there one day and they had World War II fighter pilots giving the tour. Oh, how cool is that? Yeah, they have the Boeing B uh, up there in uh, the Museum of Flight. Uh, I was up there a few years ago and I uh, went through it. That's a, that's a great museum. It's a couple of miles away from my house. I've got a story to share with you. My mom had uh, a good friend of hers at a senior center that she was part of. And her husband, her new husband at the time, was in Belgium. He was an American soldier and was in some battle over there. And they uh, procured some items out of the house that was in Belgium. And uh, this gentleman knew that I liked art and he was coming to the end and, you know, splitting things up, getting rid of some things. And he gave me this uh, painting that was done in Belgium that they sort of smuggled out and brought to here. And it's always been one of my favorite pieces because of the story. And I don't, you know, I don't know any of the great details of the story, but the painting isn't, uh, it's not really attractive, but I, I love the story of it, that it was smuggled out and, you know, brought here because the guy loved the painting himself. And, you know, some people were taking Jeep parts and I guess he was taking paintings, which I, I think is cool. Yeah. By the way, Steve, was it the Third Army that uh, uh, liberated uh, Belgium? Well, that was the first and third armies that came up through France. Actually, go uh, my, my dad, uh, seven months after he was shot down, uh, one day a word came that there were U.S. troops in a nearby village of Trelon, France. So my dad walked into town, that, in the town square, and went up to an army major. Actually, a, that was an element of Patton's Third Army, which ah. came up. France after detail. And then uh, they interrogated him to make sure my dad was who, who he said he was. And then uh, he hopped, he got a, hopped a ride on a convoy taking German prisoners to Paris. And then from Paris, he uh, hopped on a transport and made it back to, uh, to England where he sent a Western Union telegram to my mother saying, fit as a fiddle, honey, bank the money. He had all that back pay coming. Now, what did... <coughs> Because he was uh, um, MIA for seven months, what was the reaction of the family when he? Because you know there were lots and lots and lots of guys that flew that were MIA that were never heard from again. Like like had it not been for you and your research and and stuff, the guys that were actually executed, their their families might not ever have known what actually happened to them. Um, what was it like for your family after seven months to get that call that he was alive and well? That's a, that's a great question. As I, as I mentioned, they were shot down on February 8th, and on February 23rd, all the families received a Western Union telegram uh, saying that their loved one had been shot down. And at the time, my mother was pregnant with her second child, so that was really tough on her. Um, my dad didn't know until he got back to England, you know, whether he had a boy or a girl. It's funny that in all the letters my dad wrote to my mother before being shot down, he was always referred to the baby as Steve or Stevie, but it turned out to be Nancy. I, I, came, along, I came along after the war. But it was a terrifying time uh, when they got those telegrams. Uh, 
there's lots of excerpts from these letters that are in the book that make it very moving and very personal between the mothers and wives and sweethearts and other family members uh, communicating to one another, trying to uh, strengthen one another, encourage one another uh, to have faith and, and hope that their loved one would, would turn up. Uh, some of the guys in my dad's crew did become prisoners of war, so they were able to write back home and say that they were okay, but they didn't know what happened to my dad or uh, these other members on, or on, the, on the crew, except the two that were killed in the plane. So there, there, there was tragedy and, and, and triumph, but it, that was a really uh, tough time. But I, I can imagine when my dad, my, you know, sent the telegram back home and my, my mother and the other family members, uh, my dad's parents and my mother's parents found out that that had to be the, the most joyful day in their lives when they find that, found out that uh, my dad was coming back home alive. And it gave a lot of other families hope as well that their MIA uh, might be coming home as well. Unfortunately, in a lot of cases, that proved not to be true. Right. The, uh, of the three of the crew members that were killed by the, by the Nazis, um, the, all the relatives or the family was told is that they were killed. But uh, my dad's co-pilot, uh, George Ike, his dad, Derwood Ike, uh, who lived in Rochester, he, he would not abide by that. He wanted to know what happened. So he uh, and uh, got the, I forget the, who was the uh, senator at the time uh, for his area, but he pressured him and the senator was able to open up a full war crimes investigation. And that, uh, as a result of that, they found out exactly what happened uh, to these three guys. Uh, one of the things that I'm so blessed with, too, about not only knowing the story and the details of the story and all the Belgian people that are involved in the story, but almost all the places where the events took place are still there today. That schoolhouse where the, they were interrogated, the location of the hut, uh, the hut's not there anymore because they blew it up with grenades, but the location is there. All these places where my dad stayed were, were there. I've been in the rooms where he was hidden. Um, wow. So I, it's amazing to go back and visit wow. places, you know, where history took place, you know, um, you know, 75 years ago. And the name of the book is Shot Down. And I just wanted to say that not only is it a historical piece about what happened to your dad but all the other uh, uh, flyers that were with him that day in the b-17 what happened to them the families the you've done you've done a remarkable piece of journalism here and uh, I, I i thank you so much uh, for what you've done and i hope that anybody that listens to this will run out to either amazon or barnes and noble or wherever they can find it and buy this book. It is it is phenomenal what you've done, and I thank you. Well, thank you. I, I didn't have any you know writing background or training, but the story is just so amazing. Uh, the, the I didn't add or interpret or anything to the story. It's all based on firsthand testimony by the people who were involved in the event. What I did add was a great deal of historical information and anecdotes of anecdotes about and surrounding the war put it into context and give it in detail 
such as information about the 8th Air Force, the Air War over Europe, and, and things like that. If anyone wants an autographed copy of the book, they can go to my website, which is stevesnyderauthor.com. Snyder spelled S-N-Y-D-E-R. But most people get the book on Amazon. And the, and the complete title of it is Shot Down, The True Story of Pilot Howard Snyder and the Crew of the B-17, Susan Ruth. And you're talking to a couple of writers, uh, both uh, uh, Eric and oh. Matt. Matt's written nine books. And so they can appreciate all the things that you did. Matt, go ahead. We had Pappy Boynton, who went to the University of Washington. A friend of mine attended an autograph session with Pappy Boynton and the Japanese pilot who shot him down. Oh, wow. Together, and he got their autographs. Cool. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. So where are you off to next? Where do you got to fly to? I'm flying to Atlanta. I'm doing a presentation to the Georgia chapter of the 8th Air Force Historical Society. Very cool. And then I'm going to Savannah uh, to attend the 8th Air Force Historical Society reunion. Hmm. Uh, while, while I'm in town, I'm going to do a presentation at the mighty 8th uh, Air Force Museum in Pooler, Georgia. And then from there, I'm going up to Greenville, uh, South Carolina, to make a present to the Poinsettia Military uh, History Group, and then back to Atlanta to do a presentation to the Vietnam Veterans Business Association in Atlanta. My gosh. So I keep pretty busy. <laughs> I think there's cornbread in your future. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Then did you ever think that uh, when you were younger that you'd be a rock star at your age today? Well, <laughs> hardly, hardly, hardly a rock star, but... Uh, <laughs> I never ever imagined that my wildest dreams I'd be doing this. <laughs> it's fantastic. Uh, yeah, it's it fantastic. really is. And we and we love your story and and we love your heart and uh, your desire to keep you your dad's memory alive. And, and I the admire your dad, alive. man. Yeah, and your dad was your dad was one tough guy. Uh, and uh, we 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 thank him and we thank you uh, for his service. Well, I appreciate it. I, I appreciate being on the show. It's been uh, a lot of fun. I've enjoyed it. Well, good. We we got to have you back when it's, it's fairly soon, so that we can talk more about this. Because you know, it it was it was, in my opinion, the greatest generation. Absolutely, yeah, without a doubt. And uh, at the end of the war, there were 16 million World War II veterans. Now there's less than two percent of those men still with us. Oof, man. So no. if you have the opportunity, if you see a, if you see a, because I see them occasionally, a uh, license plate that says uh, veteran of Pearl Harbor or a veteran of World War II, make sure that you cut them a break and let them into traffic and and be and be nice to them because they've they've earned every little bit of respect that we can give them. Amen. So, gentlemen, anything else you'd like to add? It's been an honor. It's been an honor. Steve, you're serving the country. That's what you're doing through this, and thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, it's it's, it's an honor to do it. Uh, I'm privileged and, and blessed to be able to do it. And please go get the book. It will be a book that you will not put down from the moment you pick it up to the moment you're done with it. It is it is a remarkable story, and uh, and we thank you for being here. Much appreciated. Any is there anything that this is the time of the show when I like to, to uh, turn it over to you? Is there anything you'd like to tell our audience? Uh, anything at all? Oh, 
Um, well, one, one thing about the book that's uh, nice is that there's over 200 time period photographs of the book. So you can visualize everything that, that you're reading about. So that makes it uh, unique in the in the print version. I, obviously, if you get the, the e-book or the, the audio book, uh, it's, you don't have any pictures in those. Well, the e-book has 24. But uh, I, I would encourage people to, you know, if you have a local air museum, uh, to go visit it and see there's lots of old war birds from World War II that are in these museums that, uh, that are just amazing to see. Some of them are still flying out there. Um, uh, and when on Veterans Day or Memorial Day, you know, get the flag out and, and fly it proudly. And if you ever happen to have the opportunity to go hear any of these veterans still speak, uh, you know, they're in their mid uh, to late 90s. So uh, they're not out there too much, but uh, please do so. But uh, these air museums are, are amazing places. And uh, right there in Washington, you know, the Museum of Flight. Uh, you gotta go, gotta go see that. But there, there's really nice air museums all across the country. We've come to the end of our time together, and Steve Snyder has been our guest. Uh, go get the name of the the name of the book is Shot Down. Could you give me the sub the subtitle of it? The true story of pilot Howard Snyder and the crew of the B-17 Susan Ruth. We salute you greatly, sir. If you'll stay right where you are, um, I'll be right back. I got to do this. Hey, and thanks for listening to this episode all the way to the end. Hey, pretty cool. Hey, don't forget to follow us so you can receive regular updates and new posts. And remember, take care of each other because each other's all we've got. See you next time on My Independence Report.